Turn in your Bibles, please, to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10. I want to begin this morning by telling you about Jim. You don't know Jim, but Jim is 48 years old. He has a great job and a wonderful life. He has a great wife, Samantha, and they have been married for 20 years. They have three children. James is 15, Janie is 13, Becky is 7. She was God's surprise. They're both active in their church. They have a great circle of dear friends, and they have fellowship within their community of faith. But all that changed rather dramatically when Jim went in for his yearly physical. And it was then that he discovered that he had stage four pancreatic cancer. The doctor gave him just six months to live. To say that the news caught Jim and Samantha by surprise would be a huge understatement. To say that the kids were prepared for that news would be an even bigger understatement. My friends, how would that news change your life? How would your perspective change if you found out that you only had, at most, six months to live? Do you think that would change your priorities in life? What would change? What would be different? Let's look at this from a different perspective. What if the Lord revealed to you that the rapture would occur in the next six months? You you do not know the exact date or the exact time, but you do know that it will happen within the next six months. Do you think that would change your priorities in this life? What would change? What would be different? Let me ask you this. Why was the early church so effective, so incredibly powerful? How were they able to turn the world upside down and spread the gospel of Jesus Christ all over the world? without the use of modern-day communication technology, without TV, without radio, without even modern transportation. How did that happen? Yes, we know God was working in and through them in a very powerful way to accomplish his will. But they also had a a huge motivation for every single thing that they did. They believed that Jesus would come back at any moment. They believed that His return was imminent. At any time, it could happen. And so they lived their lives in a way that reflected that sense of urgency to be doing the things that are most important in this life, to be attending to the things that are most important in this life. Now, Peter tells us in his epistle why the Lord has delayed or even delayed to this time, 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness. But is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. The Lord, desi- the Lord delays because he desires his people to be saved. He wants more and more people to be saved. God is waiting, giving more people the opportunity to repent, to turn from their sin, and to turn to, to Christ to experience eternal life. Six months to live. Six months before the Lord's return. What effect would that have on your lives? Well, Hebrews 10, 
beginning in verse 19, gives us some insight into that. But before we unpack that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, dear Lord, again, for the immense privilege I have to open up your wonderful truth, to share this truth with all who are gathered here today and those, Lord, who are listening at home. I pray, Father, that that your Holy Spirit would be in the midst of us, that our eyes would be enlightened, that our hearts would be open, our minds would be open, that we would not just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word of the word, that you would be glorified in every single aspect of this worship service here today. Or not just the words we sing, not just the notes we play, not just the prayers we say, not even just the text that we preach, Lord, but every thought would be held captive for you this morning, for your honor, for your glory. In Christ's name. Now, we've been studying the book of Hebrews. We've been constantly reminded that Jesus is better. Matter of fact, that's the theme of Hebrews, right? Jesus is better. And the message has been evident from chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through chapter 10, verse 18. He's better than the prophets. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than Joshua. He's better than Aaron. He's better than David. He's better than all the priests specifically the last four chapters, beginning in chapter 7, verse 1, all the way up to chapter 10, 18. It had been about Jesus' superiority to the old covenant priests, especially the high priest. Secondly, we know he offers a better sacrifice that's once and for all, that atones for our sin once for all and provides us access to God eternally. Jesus also offers a better covenant, a new covenant, not written on stone tablets, but where? On our hearts, Jeremiah 31 tells us. And so the entire book has been about a doctrinal thesis of the work, of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And let me tell you this as well. There is no more definitive description found in all of the Bible. If you want to know about the person of Jesus Christ and his work. You read Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1, through Hebrews chapter 10, verse 18. Nowhere in the Bible is it more definitive than what we have covered here in the last several months. Now, why was the writer working so diligently to present Christ as better than what they had come out from? Why was he working so hard? Why did we spend 10 chapters describing why Jesus is better than what they already had with Moses and the law? The answer is because he's very aware that there are many in the congregation that have professed Christ, but are are now contemplating going back to Judaism. They want to go back under the law. They want to go back to a works-based system. And the author of Hebrews is painfully aware of that. They're wavering in their profession. They are under immense persecution, as we've talked about time and time again. They're beginning to buckle, if you will, under the immense pressure that they're facing. He has pleaded with them. He has reasoned with them. He's shown a clear desire to do and say whatever it takes to stop them from drifting away, from moving away from their profession of faith. 
And he's done this by showing them that the things that they were tempted to go back to were already inferior to what they have with Christ. Now, this is important for you to know. The author of Hebrews is not against the law. He's for the law. He just wants you to know that the law served its purpose. The law had a a very specific function in God's plan of redemption. But here's what he wants you to make sure that you understand fully. And that is what you have with Jesus is far better. Far better. And that's what he's been doing. He's been trying to show this again and again and again. And he wants to warn them, as he has many times already, of the dire consequences that awaited anyone who ignored his warnings and walked away from that profession of faith. And so leaving no stone unturned, And with all the same purpose, he's trying to keep and and, and exhort his readers, hang on to your faith. You made a profession of faith at one time. It's in your head. But now it's time to act. Now it's time to move. Why? Because Jesus is the reality that the entire law was pointing to. Remember, Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Give his life as a ransom. In him is found the fulfillment of all that has been promised. So again, the author of Hebrews knows that there are many who are sitting in that congregation who have professed Christ, yet they're not yet all in. They're not all in. And he wants them to know it's decision time. It's decision time. It's time to quit straddling the fence. It's, you'd come to a fork in the road, you need to turn to the left or to the right. Every week they were coming to church. Every week they were listening to the gospel message. They were sitting under new covenant, preaching, and some had even made professions of faith, but they were not all in. My friend, salvation is a bit like pregnancy in that regard. You're either pregnant or you're not. There's not a third option. And the same is true for salvation. You're either saved or you're not. There's no other option here. And unfortunately, many were sitting in that congregation and they were not all in. In fact, they were lost. And so from verses 19 to the end of the chapter, are primarily evangelistic. He has just spent ten and a half chapters explaining who Jesus is and what his work is and why he's better. Why what you have in Christ is so much better. And now he's going to say, you have to do something with all of that knowledge. Now that you understand that, now that you have this firm foundation, you need to take action. You need to do something with it. And so 19 to 25 are an encouragement to those who are on the fence about their profession of faith, but are not all in yet. He wants them to seize the benefits of being all in, to move from head knowledge to heart knowledge, to embrace and act upon the wonderful truths of the gospel, or in Latin, to carpe diem, to seize the day, but not seize the day for your own self-fulfillment, carpe diem for Christ, seize every day for Jesus. That's what he wants them to do, to move from the indicative to the imperatives. And indicatives in the Greek language are the facts. The imperatives are the commands. 
Unfortunately, many people know all the facts, but then they ignore the commands. I counseled an individual recently who knew all the facts of the Bible. They were very well informed. They had all the Bible facts. They could recite the gospel message, but by their own admission, they were not saved. They knew all the indicatives, but they ignored all the imperatives. They knew Jesus is God. They knew he put on flesh. They knew he lived a sinless life, fulfilling the law, died on the cross, fulfilling the scriptures, atoned for our sin, so that all who believe will have eternal life. That's almost verbatim what they told me. Now, this is an individual that was raised in the church. Their parents loved the Lord. They've shared the gospel with this individual many times. They had listened to numerous gospel messages, but they would not commit their life to Christ. My friends, it's not enough for you to come to church and sit under the gospel message every week. It's not enough to simply know about Jesus. It's not enough to come to church and be friendly and to engage in fellowship with other believers. It's not enough to sit under solid New Covenant preaching, be well taught, to feel enlightened, to feel conviction about your sin. You must be all in. The Bible tells us you must receive him and believe upon his name. What does that mean? It means you believe who he is and you believe what he said is true. You believe his promises are true. So that's whom the author of Hebrews is speaking to this morning. And so verses 19, 25, 19 through 25 are the encouragement to embrace their faith, to get off the fence. We're trying to keep one foot on each of the roads and the paths that were diverging. To just surrender it all. To give in. Quit fighting for your right to your sin. Surrender it to Christ. And then from verse 26 to the end of this chapter are the other side of the coin. What happens when you're not all in? So our text this morning, we're only going to look at the first couple verses, which is one last reminder from the author of Hebrews of why these professing believers need to act. So let's look at that together, shall we? Verse 19, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, verse 20, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, since we have a great high priest over the house of God. The word therefore then, as we all know, right? Ask, we ask ourselves, what's the therefore, therefore? It's based on all the doctrine I've shared with you about Jesus and his superiority over all things. Therefore, after all the instruction, therefore, after all the doctrine about Jesus, why he's better than anything you had under the law, specifically he's taken us Back to the last four chapters. After everything that I have shown you, the author is saying. Therefore, since we have learned that Jesus is our great high priest, and that his once and for all sacrifice actually took away 
or atone for our sin for all time. Therefore, brethren, now if we've seen many times in the book of Hebrews, he's referring here this time to his Jewish brothers, those brought up under the law, not necessarily his brothers in the faith. Remember who he's speaking to. And now comes the first characteristic of somebody who is all in. Remember, the author is moving now from instruction to invitation. You've got all the facts. There's nothing more you need to know about Jesus. But somehow you've got to move from your head to your heart. Therefore, brethren, he says, we have confidence. Confidence is one of the defining characteristics of true saving faith. You will never commit your life to something or someone that you do not have confidence in. You would never commit to marrying someone that you do not have confidence in, that, that they are who they are, they said they are, and that what they say is true, at least I hope not. When you were driving here today, you had confidence that when you hit that kind of rectangular pedal there, right there, that your car would stop. It's the same confidence you, you use when you hop onto a plane and travel at 600 miles an hour, 30,000 feet in the air, and you put that little cloth strip across you. Confidence, right? You demonstrate confidence every day. Every single day you demonstrate confidence. The same is true for salvation. You would never commit your life to Jesus unless you truly believe he is who he said he is and that his promises are true. Now his argument then follows, Therefore, brethren, brethren, since you have this confidence, it's time to act. It's time to act upon your convictions. It's time to move from knowledge without commitment to all in. But my friends, he's been doing this all along, has he not? All along, in each of the warning passages, he's been pleading with them, urging them, begging them, warning them, brethren, to quit sitting idly by without action. Keep your place in Hebrews 10 and turn to Hebrews 2. Just a quick reminder. Hebrews chapter 2. For this reason, we must do what? Pay much closer attention to do what? To what we have heard so that what? We do not drift away. Verse 2, he says, For if the word spoken through the angels proved unalterable, and every transgression had disobedience received a just penalty, he's saying if the law, which was given by the angels, proved to be unalterable, unchangeable, and every willful transgression, every sin of commission, every sin you committed, and every willful disobedience, that's, every, that's your willful unbelief, received a just penalty. If that's true with the law, how will we escape so great a salvation as this? If disobedience brought swift judgment under the old covenant, how much more judgment will be there for those who reject the new covenant authored, secured, and accomplished by God's own Son? We've already established that Jesus is greater than the angels. 
So if you received God's instruction, the law, through angels, and that proved unalterable, how alterable do you think the gospel message is? How much wiggle room do you think you have to finagle your way into heaven outside of God's plan of redemption? That's what he's saying. He says here in verse 3, the second part, After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. He was saying, we were there. Remember first John? We could see him. We could touch him. He was there. We listened to him. We ate with him. We traveled with him for three years. And we brought that same message to you. And he says, the veracity of that truth, notice the uh, verse the, verse 4, God also testifying them with both signs and wonders by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. He's saying the, the truthfulness of what we were telling you was confirmed by God, by signs and miracles and wonders, all according to his will, and gifts that he had given to the apostles to authenticate the message of what they were sharing. So do not, he says, do not let your ship of salvation drift on past the harbor of salvation. Do you remember that? Don't get so caught up. Don't think you have all this time. Don't keep wrestling in your head and then realize someday that that window is gone. And you don't have a choice anymore to anchor at the harbor of salvation. It's decision time. Look at Hebrews chapter 3. One chapter over, beginning in verse 12. Here again, take care, brethren, that there not be any one of you with an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Here again, another warning to act upon the faith. Verse 12, here he calls in, he calls those who are uh, unbelieving an evil, an evil, unbelieving heart. Again, some people believe he's speaking to believers because he uses the word brethren here. But can you be a brother in Christ with an evil, unbelieving heart? No. Then in verses 13 to 15, he says, But encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, specifically the deceitfulness of your own sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. He says, today is the day. Today is the day. Do not harden your hearts. Then in verse 16 to 19, he explains again what happened in the wilderness wandering. What was their issue? They provoked him. How did they provoke God? By their disobedience. What exactly was their disobedience? Verse 19 tells us. Unbelief. The grumbling, the mumbling were just an extension of their unbelief. Hebrews 4 verse 1. Therefore, let us fear if while a promise remains of entering his rest... Any one of you may seem to have come short of it. What caused the wilderness wandering groups of belief? Verse 2, for indeed we have had the good news preached to us, just as they did also. Who's the they? Those in the wilderness wandering. 
They could see that God was true and that his, what he said was true and his promises were true. But what happened? The word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. Translation, they did not commit. They were not all in. Even after everything they had seen, even after everything they had witnessed, can you imagine being part of the group where your family has been generationally in bondage for 400 years? And then God moves in such a way that not only do you leave Egypt, but you leave with more treasures than you could carry. And when Pharaoh changes his mind and you're cornered up against the sea, God parts the sea so that you can go through it on dry land. And he swallows up Pharaoh's army. And Moses goes up to the mountaintop. He's not gone very long. You want to go back. So you make a, a golden calf, an idol. God gives them a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night to guide them through. And what do they do along the way? Complain, grumble, mumble. All of those were signs of unbelief. So in verse 6 there, he says, Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, because of unbelief, he again fixes a certain day, today, saying through David after so long a time, he's quoting a David here, Just as been said before, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, for if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day, right? If that's the rest he was talking about, was just physically getting into the promised land, why is David talking about quoting and coming into another rest? It's not a physical, it's not that rest. It's not getting into the promised land. It's a rest in God. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Remember earlier he had been talking about creation. Why is he talking about creation on the Sabbath day of rest? He's saying, you need to have a rest from believing, my friends, that you can get to heaven by your works. Remember who he's speaking to. You cannot get into heaven. So then in verse 11, he says, Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of Disobedience, unbelief. For the word of God, right, is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and narrow, and also to judge the thoughts and intentions of what? The heart. There's no creature, just in case you thought that God doesn't know what's going on in your heart. The author of Hebrews reminds him, verse 13, there's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Okay, so the author wants, he wants these professing believers. He's been warning them all along. He wants them to not delay. He wants them to act today before it's too late. He's been warning them. Chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 6. Chapter 10. Now he says, I want you to have confidence. Go back to our text now in Hebrews chapter 10. 
Still in verse 19. Confidence to do, do what? To enter the holy place. What does he mean by holy place? Remember, that's a reference not to the physical ta- tabernacle, but which one? The heavenly tabernacle. He wants you to have confidence now because of your faith in Christ to enter into the very presence of God. He's talking about access to God. In the Old Testament, remember, only the high priest could enter into the Holy of Holies only once a year, only after their sin was atoned for. A little bells around the bottom of his garment there to make sure he was still alive, right? Tied a rope around there because I'm not going in there. I mean, if he, if God killed him for his sin, I think I've repented of my sin, right? Somebody, they had to drag him out of there. The high priest would enter with fear and trembling because he knew that God was pure holiness And one mistake on his part could mean death. One unconfessed sin. The author of Hebrews does not tell his readers to fear, though. He invites them to go in with what? Confidence. Matter of fact, Hebrews 4 says, boldly come into the throne room of grace. He's talking about access to God. For whom? For those who are all in This is one of the benefits of a true believer, one that has committed their life to Christ, one that's all in. And remember from our previous study that all the sacrifices of the Old Covenant by the priest did not give them access to God. You heard of some of those this morning. Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. Even the, the blood itself was just a reminder of the ultimate price that would need to be paid for their sin. Hebrews 10.3, All of those old sacrifices were just a reminder that you're still in your sin. They only covered that sin that day. You walked out of their sin again. You carried that again until next year. That needed to be atoned for. Hebrews 10.4, it is impossible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sin. Not highly probable, not maybe, it is impossible. Possible. Hebrews 10.10, the blood of animals could never take away sin, but the blood of Christ, there it is in verse 10, we have been sanctified. We've been set apart. We've been declared holy. How? Through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once. For how long? For all. Or for all time. Hebrews 10.14, he has perfected us. For how long? For all time. How? Verse 19b, there you go. Through his blood, through his perfect sacrifice once for all. What is the result? God chooses to remember our sins no more. Remember that from verse 18. God chooses to place our sins behind his back. His perfect sacrifice. Because of that, we have confidence to enter into the very sanctuary of God. You realize every time you close your eyes in prayer, my friends, if you're a true believer, you are immediately into the sanctuary of God. You realize that? I wonder if it changed our prayers if we remembered every time that we go to the throne of grace, that there we are, spiritually in the throne room of God. If you're not all in, you don't have that access to God. We don't get to just stroll into God's presence on our own terms and expect God to accept you. 
You may say all the right things. You may know all the lingo. You may have a bunch of Jesus gear in your closet. You might have a fish sticker on your bumper. But without the shed blood of Jesus Christ, you cannot get into the presence of God. Matthew 7. There are many people who say, Lord, Lord, we've done many works in your name. We've even cast out devils. We've done miracles. And now we want to come into your kingdom. You remember what the Lord says? Depart from me. I never knew you. And that word no, that gnosko means I never knew you intimately. Of course, he knows about you. He knows all things. He's saying, I never knew you. I never knew you in that way like I know my children. I never knew you. There's only one way into the presence of God is through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Point number two. Well, it took a long time to get through point number one, didn't it? Point number two. We have confidence that Christ inaugurated us through the veil. We have confidence that Christ inaugurated us through the veil. Interestingly here, that word new is a very rare word in the New Testament. It actually means freshly slaughtered. Freshly slaughtered. That's a reference to the crucifixion. We have confidence to enter into the Holy of Holies by a freshly slaughtered and living way. The living way is a reference to the resurrection. Note that it's a living way, which means that the sacrifice that was given is alive. He is alive. He has risen. And he's seated at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us. And so, it's a living way because of the sacrifice of Jesus. And it's a, uh, it's a living way because of the sacrifice. Jesus is alive through the resurrection. If you're all in, my friends, if you're a true believer, you are alive. And I'm not just talking about physically. I'm talking about spiritually. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. life. Jesus told Martha in John chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me, what? Will never die. And then he says, do you believe this? Notice also that Jesus inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. That veil is a reference to the veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place in the tabernacle. That veil shut God in, remember, and shut man out to the direct presence of God. That veil is symbolic of Christ's flesh in his human body. And Christ's sacrificial death opened up access to the very presence of God. Matthew 27 tells us, And behold, the veil of the temple, right, was torn from the top to the bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. Direct access for all true believers was now available. They were to come with confidence. Not confidence in themselves, but confidence in what Christ has done. Verse 21, point number three. We have confidence in our great high priest, Jesus Christ. We have confidence in our great high priest, Jesus Christ. Notice that again. Over the house of God. Who is the house of God? Turn to Hebrews chapter 3 quickly.
Verse 1. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house. Remember we talked about that. That's the law, the covenant, the old covenant. For he had been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of these things which were to be spoken later. Verse 6. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, as the ruler, the owner of the house, whose house we are. We are the house of God. Not this building. We, all the true believers, you are the temple of God, my friends. If you have trusted Christ as your personal Savior, you are the house of God. All of us collectively are the house of God. Those who are his faith, those who are his faithful, those who have accepted Christ, those who are all in, those who have moved just beyond just a profession of faith to a true commitment, that have confidence and faith in who Jesus is and that his promises are true. Every single person who is truly saved has confidence in Christ and his word. And this is not your confidence, incidentally. Rather, confidence in Christ and his word is through the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that actually affirms your soul, that gives you that confidence. It's the power of the Holy Spirit that enables you to withstand the trickery of the devil, the empty philosophies of men. It's the power of the Holy Spirit that enables you to withstand the lure of a works-based salvation or a works-based sanctification. Remember, my friends, if you were not saved by your works, you cannot be kept saved by your works. If you were not saved by your moral perfection, you cannot lose your salvation by your moral imperfection. Notice that Christ is a great high priest over the entire family of God. That word great means sovereign. He's our sovereign high priest over his house, the church. He loves us. He died for us. He cares for us. He disciplines us. He prays for us. He intercedes for us. And he shed his blood for us so that we have access to God. My friends, we've come to that same place this morning that those in the congregation in Hebrews are facing. What we're doing now is we're pulling off to the side of the road and remembering all the wonderful truths that we just covered this morning. We're just going to mentally pull off to the side here and just kind of think for a second. Some of you who are here today have been taught. You have been enlightened. You have partaken in the midst of true believers in the house of God. And now it's decision time. You have arrived at the crossroads this morning, and the time of instruction has come to an end. You cannot just continue to hear the gospel again and again and again and never respond. In fact, the Bible tells us that it's dangerous to your very soul to do that. 
To decide, not to decide, is to decide against Jesus. Jesus said, he that is not with me is what? Against me. Notice no third option. Beloved, the gospel is not a discussion to be had later. It's not a debate on whether you think it's true or not. It's a command. You're either all in or you're not in at all. You either receive him or you reject him. There is no third option. My dear friends, if you only had six months before you were to stand before Jesus, you had to give him a reason of why he should grant you access into his presence forever, what would be your defense? Lord, Lord, let me in. I went to church regularly. I attended every function. I know the plan of salvation. I've memorized many verses. I read my Bible all the time. Because if those are what you plan on saying, this is what you're going to hear from the Lord. Depart from me. I never knew you. Is your confidence in Jesus and his atoning work, my friends? Is it in the shed blood of Jesus that provides you access to his presence forever? Do you have confidence in our great high priest for your salvation and your sanctification? Are you ready to get off the fence and commit your life to Jesus? Are you all in? My friends, many of you here have already made that decision. It is the most important decision you will ever make. And it shouldn't take something as tragic as life-ending news to make you aware of the fact you just can't keep straddling the fence. Because even that breath you just took is by the grace of God. The time for you to act is now. If you're here, you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. Oh, I pray. I beg you. I plead with you. I implore you. Do not leave today and presume upon his grace one more day. Commit. You've had enough instruction. If you've been attending this church for any time, you've heard the gospel I don't know how many times. Day is the day for you to commit your life to Christ. Let's pray. Dear Lord, your word is so powerful. Lord, it pierces us to our very soul. Lord, I think of my own life and how I sat in that pew for a year and wrestle with you. Why I thought I deserved to be called a child of yours. But I praise you, Lord, that you kept on piercing my heart, piercing my soul with your word. And I thank you for the faithful preachers and teachers who were here at this time that kept challenging me through your word to commit and had enough instruction. 
was time to be all in. So, Lord, I pray if there's one here in our midst that was doing the same thing that I was doing those many years ago, Lord, I pray you draw them to yourself and that they would commit their life to you. Father, if they do, the angels will rejoice that there's another child of God. Lord, for those who are here today who have already made that decision, Lord, I hope we realize that we have perpetual, unfettered access to you. And that when we pray, we come into the very throne room of God. Lord, may we understand that fully and have the full assurance of what's occurring from your word. Lord, thank you again for this message. In Christ's name we pray.